Welcome to Seafoodie, a podcast series that seeks out meaningful conversations about the issues surrounding seafood and the complex system that gets it to your mouth. I'm your host, Chef Robert Jones, and I interview guests from all over the country who make up the fabric of our seafood supply chain. Today, we're going to talk about the epidemic in our nation. And no, I do not mean COVID-19. I mean the epidemic of hunger and food insecurity that existed decades before some ill-fated diner ate an undercooked pangolin in a Wuhan market. As we've discussed on this show many times, our nation's food system has serious flaws, including what Dr. Raj Patel aptly refers to as being stuffed and starved. Calories are cheap and nutrition is expensive. So not only do people face food scarcity every day, the types of food available to them contribute to obesity and malnourishment in the same households. And the economic collapse caused by the terrible mismanagement of COVID-19 has put tens of millions more people in this country on the brink. My guest today is at the front line of tackling this challenge using high protein, nutritious fish and seafood. From Bainbridge Island in Washington State, Jim Harmon is the executive director for SeaShare, a nonprofit organization that has worked with the fishing industry since 1994 to get donations of seafood into Feeding America's national network of food banks. They have facilitated over 250 million servings to people in need thus far. Prior to SeaShare, Jim was the director of operations for American Seafoods Company and has over 30 years of experience working in the seafood industry. Jim, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So tell us right off the bat, how does SeaShare work? How do the logistics work in moving this product to the people who need it? Um, Well, SeaShare actually started in 1994 with one small project, and that was Dreetain Fish that um, um, due to fishery regulations, um, incidental catch had to be thrown overboard rather than retained. The idea was not to create any incentive, monetary incentive, to retain fish that you weren't targeting. So if you're fishing for pollock and you catch a salmon or a halibut, you had to throw it overboard. And fishermen were um, disappointed in that, and they hate throwing away good protein. So they said, this is crazy. Why are we throwing fish overboard? Um, and this conversation started. My friend Tuck Donnelly actually started SeaShare to do just that. He, um, he got uh, experimental fisheries permit in 1994 uh, to prove that we could retain those fish and uh, use them only for hunger relief and um, that we could do it without upsetting the market and with, without um, brutalizing the fish. Um, so it's just taken off from there. And that program alone has provided over 25 million servings over the last 20 years, 20 plus years. So that was our start. But I guess to to answer your question more directly, what we do is we help fishermen um, maximize the value they can donate by adding processing, packaging, freight, cold storage, um, all the, and and financial support um, to create donations that no single entity could, could do by itself. So you have basically set up a seafood company with the processing and the packaging and everything, but for the sole purpose of taking that product, that extra product, uh, and, and putting it into the, the supply chain. But in this instance, the supply chain is the Feeding America food bank system. That's right. We have a board of 15 seafood executives all over the country, and they work to kind of define opportunities that might exist for um, not just excess, but maybe challenged products, um, maybe 
low cost products that could be accessed with the right funding um, and allow the distributor or the processor to take a tax write off on it and make it available food for food banks rather than selling it into a secondary market. So give us an example of the, the species that we're talking about in that instance. So we, um, we just recently did a, a couple loads of tilapia um, that were available on the East Coast and the tilapia has a shorter shelf life. This was fresh product um, and they needed to move it quickly. So they called us and said, you have a, an avenue to get this into hands quickly before it um, um, gets to shelf life. So we have a lot of contacts on the East Coast, particularly in the Miami area. We were able to move that product out quickly um, rather than having it go to landfill. So instead of fishermen or fish houses and processors across the country having to figure out how to navigate this complex network of food banks and where there might be need, you can serve as a central point to manage those logistics. Yeah, we have a, you know, we know a lot of people in the seafood industry. We also know a lot of people um, around the country um, who can help us with other things like packaging and freight and storage um, to move products so that it's just an easy call, one easy call from the donor um, and we'll take care of the rest for them. And outside of goodwill, what, what are some of the other incentives that, that the donor has to, to, to move that product to you and get it into the hands of uh, food insecure people? You know, I think um, when I talk to fishermen and processors, the number one, um, one reason why they donate is because they want to feed more seafood to more people. Um, they want to see good protein get used. It's also helping their markets. I mean, you're feeding people. Um, the food banks represent a large portion of the market that aren't maybe available to uh, those clients. Um, they can't go to stores right now, or they can't go to restaurants right now. Um, but those are people, they aren't chronically homeless that you think of. These are people who, you know, they work three weeks out of four, mm -hmm. you know, or, they, or they're just in between jobs and they just have a temporary need. Um, mm -hmm. So sell pre-COVID all these explanations but, but these are people that if they have a good experience with seafood from the food bank they're going to go buy it eventually um, at a restaurant or at a grocery store so we're helping build the market um, and, and thirdly there are some tax incentives um, people generally don't ask for that up front um, they just try to find out about that after they've donated so it's kind of an ancillary benefit I see and so um, I Part of the question I was going to ask, I think you've answered, but it sounds like you are dealing nationwide, even though you're based out of uh, the West Coast, you are moving product from coast to coast into food banks across the country. Correct. Um, over 50% of domestic seafood comes from Alaska. Um, so that's where a lot of our operations, a lot of our partners work. Um, but then a lot of those Alaska people also have companies in Seattle that work on either distributing or moving product or reprocessing it. So we work here as well. That's why I'm based here. Um, but we also have partners in New England. We have partners in Chicago and Texas and Florida. Um, so last year, I think we served 22 different states. And over the last 25 years, we've had all 50 of them. So yeah, we wow. do almost uh, 2 million pounds a year um, across the US. Incredible. Uh, and, and I would imagine that you have only seen that increase in, since March. Uh, with COVID. Uh, I, I was looking at some of the numbers that Feeding America uh, put out um, that we've gone from having daily about 14 to 15 million people who are food insecure to upwards of 60 million people uh, who are food insecure during the pandemic. Have you seen uh, that rise in your work as well? 
Yeah, we work closely with Feeding America. You know, we don't feed people directly ourselves, but we feed their food banks. Mm-hmm. So um, the wheels have really come off um, this year and Feeding America stepped up hugely um, to respond to it. But, you know, protein items are the first items to run out and they're the hardest items to replace. So uh, we flushed through all the volume we possibly could um, in the first seven months of this year. Um, we've done almost the same amount that we did all of last year. Uh, so we've, we've tapped into everything we could possibly do. And now we're just out there searching, shaking the bushes and looking for the next level of product. And it's, it's going to be more expensive. So uh, we're fundraising to try to offset that. Yeah, I want to talk about the fundraising in just a second. I'm curious how the first phase of the pandemic and the close down went for you with every restaurant in America closing. I, I assume a lot of domestic seafood need, needed a home uh, when there was the surprise closures of restaurants. Um, did, did a lot of the product that you moved first, was it originally intended for restaurants? Um, I don't think so. Not for us anyway. You know, we're just a staff of three. So we can't work very often on fresh product unless it's something we do all the time, like the sloppy we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, restaurant product, I think, probably ended up backing up the supply chain. Um, but the donations we received early on were actually some retail products um, that were available um, that people just said, here, you know, we know we've got this. Um, we can make it available right away. We know that food banks can distribute it. It won't have to be reworked. Mm-hmm. Um, Food banks aren't good at taking food service product because that's generally packed, you know, in a bulk pack, 25 pound box or a 50 pound box. Um, and food banks, most food banks aren't qualified to rework product. So we would have to take that in ourselves and do that. And, and we haven't, because of the immediacy of the problem, we haven't um, accessed those products. It's been retail stuff that's ready to go right on the shelf. So for, for our listeners who aren't in the food industry, when, describe what you mean when you say you're not allowed to, they're not allowed to rework product. So food banks um, are very good at distributing frozen products and, and fresh products, um, but they're always packed. They don't touch the product. Mm-hmm. So when you get a bulk pack of 40 pounds of salmon fillets, for example, those are going to be IQF individually quick frozen. And then those are placed in one large 40 pound master. So food bank can't food bank can't open up that forty pound master and hand out individual fillets because they aren't packed inside. So, so yeah. that's why it has to be something that's that's they're used to receiving um, for retail or for home use. So, in some cases, we do repack a lot of fish, um, but SeaShare has that done here on the West Coast, and then we have finished products that are in bags or in smaller boxes that you can open up and hand out to individual families. Mm-hmm. So on that line of thought, uh, over the course of SeaShare's history, have you had to try to push for some regulatory changes to deal with some of the barriers like that that might prevent uh, product from getting to the hands it needs to? Um, no, I think um, we support the safe handling of product, and, and we don't want regulatory changes on that process. I do think that Feeding America's network is trying to evolve and add capacity so that they can have clean rooms, so they can do that kind of that kind of work. And there are two or three that I know of that can, that can take product and repack it. But, um, you know, we would, what we do is we make maybe three truckloads available at Feeding America's office in Chicago, and they'll put it out on their national network, the choice system, mm-hmm. and whatever bank um, wants that product. Sometimes it has a small cost attached to it. Whatever food bank around the country that wants to accept that can come get it. Very few of those will take product that needs to be reworked. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think where we can can have a, an effect on 
change in the food bank system is by coming up with the or evolving the shelf life programs. Um, there's a lot of different best buy or must be used by dates. And, and I don't think product goes bad on a certain day. There should be a gradation of deterioration that allows you to look at, look at selling your product in a primary market, a secondary market, then maybe food bank market, then maybe pet food, and then lastly landfill. But because we have, have these hard cutoff dates, it's, it, people wait too long and say, oh, now I can't do something. Now what do I do? So that, yeah. I think that creates a waste that we can work on. Yeah. Well, as you know, you and I originally met at the ReFed conference in San Francisco last year, which was focused on food recovery and waste. It is one of the issues that I am most passionate about, and it is a crisis in this country, the amount of food that we're wasting. And, and seafood is particularly bad. Um, you know, we, you may lose 65% or more of seafood that goes home with consumers from the grocery store because of those kinds of dates. And they're, they're particularly scared of handling feed, food, seafood. And all, that's why a lot of people don't cook seafood at home. They prefer to eat it in a restaurant. So uh, I, I'm not surprised to hear you say that at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so too I, bad. But yeah, I think there's ahead, a lot of what ahead. we can do. And, and I appreciated that conference last September that we were both at because um, they're starting that conversation. And I think we can take that information, guys like you and me, back to our donors and back to our seafood industry and say, you know, we want to support helping you do this. So what would that look like? Um, have you thought through, you know, how you could change um, the, the use of dates on product in order to, to boost, you know, the, the supply into, into your, for your particular needs? So we've, um, we have a, a long track record of, of um, accepting products that are actually at their best buy date already. What we do is we ask the, the seafood company to have their QC department reinspect that which they're very good at doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, they might've first said that we're gonna give this a 12 month shelf life, but after 12 months, if you pull it out of your freezer and it hasn't been moved, it's been kept in one place at minus 18 um, and you retest it, you can give it another three, safely give it another three months of shelf life. Mm-hmm. And that's all the food bank needs to move product. They need about 90 days to accept it and get it out to families. So we've moved millions of pounds that way. Wow, that's wow. great to hear. So you but said that you- I'm sorry, that's part the, one of the problems with Zoom, there's a little bit of lag there. But what I want to say is that, um, it's extra work for the companies to do that. But those companies that want to see product moved, um, they're willing to go to that extra level of retesting product and sending us a letter recommending safeguarding it for another 90 days. So I wanted to go back and ask a question again about the genesis of the organization, which uh, was very innovative and started with bycatch. Um, to deal with that issue. How has the, how has it evolved over time uh, from just bycatch? And it, are there some seafood companies that are particular harvesting extra amounts for this sole purpose, for example? Yeah, well, the first answer is that um, as of this year, about 10% of the total volume that SeaShare has donated comes from bycatch. Mm-hmm. So 90% is other items. Some of those are people fishing an extra day for SeaShare. Some people saying we're going to we're going to keep a portion of this out for the food banks. A lot of the processes are thinking about what we can do if we have something that's um, if you make pollock block, you know those are there might be 200 fillets in a 16.5 pound block of frozen pollock. That block might have three voids in it, and those voids are just really small air holes that make it more difficult to process because once you put it in the par fryer, it's going to explode. 
So they won't take it to their customer. They'll say, they'll say we're willing to use that for food bank purpose and use it as fill-in work to keep plants busy. So we got a lot of off-grade product that's still very wholesome, um, but might not be the primary product that they're getting top dollar for. Speaking of wholesome, talk a little bit about the value of seafood to, to these food banks in terms of its nutrition and the protein level. So I'm not, you know, I'm not a real a food bank expert, but um, we all know that seafood is one of the highest protein items that can be available in the food bank network. Um, there, there is, there is no other like sea share that does the same thing we do for pork or for chicken. Um, it tends to be um, almost like a seafood buyer at Feeding America that's working with Tyson or that's working with DuPont or whoever the big uh, pork supplier is to access stuff them at the cheapest possible price and I think other than what we provide I think ground turkey is right now the cheapest item available to them in the protein category uh, the meat category um, but it's inconsistent um, so it, we compare well with that food lifeline or food feeding America values every pound of food they get at $1.74 right now that could be seafood that could be cola that could be potato chips um, we use the same number they use because that's what they give us and it flows well from their books to our books. But we know that seafood has a value that's much higher than $1.74 a pound. And year in, year out, what we do right now is costing about 40 to 45 cents per pound for seafood that we donate. So it, that brings up a point uh, about this, not, an equivalent not existing in the, in, with other protein companies. Um, is, is the model that you've built at SeaShare scalable? to both uh, other countries as well as other forms of protein in this country? So I don't think as far as other forms of protein in this country is because I don't think there's, there's a, I don't think there are the other protein items have these large organizations that work together like the seafood industry has. You know, I work with the Pacific Seafood Processors, I work with the At Sea Processors, the National Fisheries Institute, and all those organizations have, you know, large groupings of large processors that all agree to, to support C-Share. Um, I don't know that that exists in the, in the poultry or the other meat businesses. I do think it's scalable in other countries, and we've talked to some of them. Um, we've talked to people in Peru, we've talked to people in Canada. Um, the, the difference there is I think the wild catch and processing capability is different there. Um, so the model might be more geared towards um, aquaculture, and I think that's a great way to grow what we do, not just in other countries, but I think um, domestically, I think uh, aquaculture has a, a great growth potential for donations. Yeah, it seems to me that there would be, in terms of modeling out supply, the aquaculture might be easier to do than, than wild capture, where there may be more boom and bust um, to, to harvest rates. Yeah, but there's also different uh, profit margins involved, I think. You know, it, it's, it's going to be more like general farming that's at a, a margin of maybe less than 10% where wild capture is probably greater than that still in certain, in certain fisheries. So let's talk a little bit about the, the, the fundraising for the organization. I know you're in the middle of a fundraising campaign. What, what are sort of your needs to, to right now to meet the demand that you have in this crisis? Um, you know, year in, year out, we have what we call um, dollars to keep the doors open. And we're funded about a third from the seafood industry and about a third from um, individuals and foundations. And another third, um, about a third from each of those. So that's it. Then we, we get other grants 
and we also get support from the food bank network to actually access product that might have some costs involved. You might get fish donated for free, but then we got to have it reworked into something the food banks can use, the packaging. So those are the dollars that we raise um, to support product that we can't get free. Right now, we've got a program going on. Like I said earlier, we've moved everything we can move um, with the funding that we have currently. We're at about 1.3 million pounds right now. So that's um, over, what, 5.2 million servings at four ounces per serving. Um, so in order to reach a next level product, we got to raise dollars. So that's what we're doing right now. And our seafood partners have provided some matching funds. And there's an online fundraiser right now. There's a, a happy hour at four o'clock today with one of the groups um, to bring in their associate members to try to raise more dollars for us. So to give, give people um, perspective, what is the, so that 5 million servings right now, is that, is that per month, per week? That's what um, we generated year to date from January to July, 5 million servings. And that's what the, the current dollars that we've raised. So we, we think if we get another $150,000, we could generate another million servings. That's what and, and what do you, what is the need? Um, you know, in, in a perfect world, if you could raise whatever amount, um, what is the need that needs to be met? So I don't know. I, um, Feeding America would be a better, better organization to ask that question. They've never had a problem moving the product that we've given them. Mm. I know we could easily double our volume um, and Feeding America would take it. Um, at some point, it becomes a cost factor. We get what we can at you know the 40 cent per pound finished rate um, and we move that out either with our dollars or with Feeding America's dollars. Um, but the next level product is going to be probably more expensive than that. And if it gets in the 60 to 70 cent range per pound, you know, that's still, we can provide four servings per pound. That's still 20 cents a serving for right. high protein seafood. That's still a great price, but somebody has to cover that. And we, we I don't know where those dollars are going to come from. I see. So how do people, uh, if, if individuals who listen to this show are interested in supporting your work, um, how do they, how can they get involved? I think the best way, well, they can, if they, we, we'll take three things. We'll take either finances, we'll take fish, or we'll take services. So C-Share will use all those and put them to the best use possible. If you want to give dollars, you can go to cshare.org and you can donate online. Um, if you have friends that want to have a fundraiser, they can contact me. We can put together either an online thing or an in-person event in the future um, to bring people together and, and you know offer auction items or, or do some other various kind of fundraiser that might help move the needle. And then um, what about services you had mentioned? Uh, is there any, any particular need that the organization, you got a lot of people who are underemployed or, uh, you know, have time at home. Is there any, any, any services that somebody could provide to you from, from re remote work? So, you know, as we talked before, you know, we use a lot of trucking. We use a lot of cold storage and those kinds of things. If people have contacts that they want to help us with in seafood centric areas, you know, LA, Seattle, Chicago, Boston, Miami, um, we should talk to them. Um, but one of the great ways that individuals can help right now is through the food banks and that's volunteering locally. Mm -hmm. um, I was just reading an article about what happened with the pandemic is everybody started staying home. You know, and, and most food banks are run by volunteers and that's really hard. And I know people are trying to take care of themselves, but the food banks are typically run by retired volunteers. Um, and those people are probably the most susceptible to um, 
the, the effects of COVID. So um, I think other people um, can help fill that gap. And if you aren't working right now, and if you're healthy, and if you're willing to um, wear a mask and, and do the right things, I think the food bank could use your help. So tell us a little bit about uh, the next phase for C-Share. I mean, we're, we've got the, you know, I think we're probably going to be in this crisis for, you know, another four or five, six months until there's a vaccine readily available. Before the crisis uh, and the pandemic, what was your kind of next uh, stage of growth for the organization and where you're headed? Um, you know, we're always looking for more partners. We have about 150 across the country that help us. Um, and those are seafood companies, fishermen, distributors, importers. Um, but I do think that working with aquaculture companies who want to help um, raise seafood consumption in the U.S. is probably the best um, prospect for us to go to. Mm -hmm. um, the hard part is a lot of a lot of aquaculture still happens offshore um, outside of the U.S. and they don't really bring it in until there's a sales order against it. Um, so we need to have them kind of build in a donation portion. Um, into their business models so that uh, it's funny we you know americans eat an awful lot of tuna um canned tuna mm -hmm. but canned tuna is something that really isn't donated it's either purchased by the government and put in the food bank network um or it or it's just sold on retail shelves so i think aquaculture is a great place to, for us to help kind of bring in more products that will um, that people are used to eating in the u.s mm -hmm. That was well, pretty cool. well uh, anyone from Chicken of the Sea and Thai Union listening to the show, you, you heard that. Uh, <laughs> it's time to time to jump in here on this. Um, yeah, I agree with you. And we've had we've had a, a whole show dedicated to aquaculture um, and the and the role it can play in in feeding the country and dealing you know with some of the challenges in the seafood supply chain. We're, we seem to be, as a country, having a hard time getting our act together with aquaculture and setting up the regulatory framework that we need uh, while the rest of the country, I mean, the rest of the world is really far ahead of us on this issue. Yeah, I think that um, we're making some progress. Um, you you got to take the genetically modified portion aside, you know, and, and mm -hmm. but I think some of the shore-based aquaculture looks pretty promising. Yeah, agreed. And, and, and in the shellfish industry as well, they seem to be moving at a, a faster clip um, and getting that. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Um, you know, I probably didn't ask you a question that you wished I had. Is there anything else you want to add uh, for, for, for the audience to, to better understand the organization and the mission? No, I'm, I'm, you've been great. And I appreciate your help and your, um, your interest in, in talking about this, this topic. Um, the need has never been greater. Um, there's 40% more people at risk of hunger this year than there were last year. Um, food banks are trying to keep the shelves filled and um, we're doing everything we can, but at some point, like everybody else, it comes down to dollars. So you got a well, if you can help, that's great. And the, the bang for the buck with seafood is definitely there in terms of nutrition and, and the protein level. Um, you know, if it's gonna be uh, a, a serving that somebody gets in this country who's food insecure, it's a really valuable one to get. Yeah, um, and, and combine that with the fact that that C shares a staff of three with 15 hardworking board members across the country, our uh, our administ our overhead rate is only seven percent. So um, that's pretty competitive in the nonprofit world. So uh, we do good things and we're pretty efficient with our money. 
Well, that no doubt about that. You're doing incredible work. Um, good luck to you. Uh, we'll try to, to drive some traffic your way and in, in, in helping fund the work that you're doing. And uh, Jim, I really appreciate your time today. It was, it was great. Thank you again to Jim Harmon uh, for spending time with us today to talk about this critical issue. Uh, I encourage all of you to go to cshare.org uh, if you can and make a contribution to this important work to get nutritious seafood into the hands of people who are suffering in this country every day from food insecurity. I also 100% support Jim's call to action to get out and volunteer at local food banks. Uh, who need the labor to take advantage of these kinds of donations and make sure they get into the hands of those that need them. Uh, additionally, I wanted to give a shout out to America's chefs and restaurateurs, uh, who are some of the most resilient people you will ever meet. Right now, thousands of restaurants across, across the country have pivoted their operations and are now making meals to feed families in their communities that are food insecure. Uh, incredibly important work. Thank you to everyone listening to today's episode. And as always, I welcome your feedback and show ideas. And I can be reached at robertevansjones.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods normally. Uh, and you'll get access to additional episodes and then get future episodes delivered directly to your device. Until next time, I wish you calm seas. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com.